Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life. This is a program of the International Disciple Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about our ministry in over 40 different countries, go to traincpe.org. You can also find us at links at breadoflifeboise.org, where you'll learn about our local missions fellowship. For now, we ask you to take your Bible in hand and invite you to turn to Psalm 14, where David tells us that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And from that profession, David will trace the downward spiral of atheism, impacting the character of the one professing it and the culture that they give shape to. It says, they do not do what is good. They do not do what is good. There is none who does good. Here the idea is that they are selfish, self-consumers in their mindset. They are seeking their own advantage and not others. The idea of goodness in the Bible is the idea of something that acts towards and lives towards the benefits of others. And basically they're saying they are not acting with a supreme consideration for others no matter what they tell you. They are acting out of consideration for themselves. They don't seek what is best for others. Just the opposite. In fact, what happens is this character, as you go through the rest of the psalm, you see that it matures into a growing animosity towards those who believe in God and towards those who live for God. They begin to despise the believer as someone who is impeding upon their own pursuit of freedom to do what they want, when they want, as much as they want. And they resent the person who brings God into the picture, who brings the notion of God's holiness or God's accounting or God's judgment or God's hell or God's punishment or God's supreme absolute right and wrong. They resent that person. Not only that, is there this growing animosity towards the person who believes in God, but there is a callousness in the conscience of these individuals that grows upon them to the point where at some point they can take human life as thoughtlessly as they may eat a piece of bread. That's what he says. That's the pathway. This callousness towards those that tenderly remind us of something better in life. And ultimately a callousness towards even the destruction of life alone. So here's how it works again. Listen for a second. God must die first or at least disappear from our conscience on a daily basis. We have to replace him then with something. And so what we replace him with is just materialism. We'll believe only in those things that we can sense and feel and put our hands upon. Only those things that you can touch are the things that really matter. And this means basically what matters above everything in our life is those things that bring to us the greatest sensations. That's what materialism does. It brings you a sensation. And so sensualism becomes, to some extent the governing principle and celebration of its life. Malcolm Muggeridge, who used to be an atheist himself and converted to Christianity, wrote and said that, in effect, eroticism is the spirituality of the materialist. Utterly giving themselves to sensuality. Look at our day and age and see what's happening around you. Look at what's on the papers all around. Look what's in the entertainment. See how it's growing. You can see by the very things that are being celebrated. It's how interesting, at the same time in which men high-mindedly dismiss the presence of God, they behave in the most sensual ways, and they give themselves to it. It's just the way it works. Sexual freedom, this abandonment to sensuality, results in something. You know what it results in? A lot of unwanted pregnancies. 
That's what it results in. Dines Souza says the second great sacrament of atheism is abortion. If eroticism is its mysticism, abortion is its altar, where it makes its sacrifices. What is abortion? It's a person who doesn't just kill a baby, but they kill their own unborn baby. God has to die. God has to be considered of no consequence in order to do something like that. Only in a country like America, where Christianity is still on the forefront of people's minds, do we in a society like ours even debate the moral rightness or wrongness of abortion. If this were a purely secular society, it wouldn't even be up for debate. You can protest and say, well, wait a second here, Joel, come on, I, I know these atheists really gives birth to a secular humanism. They're humanistic. Their big outcry even against religion is that there's a lack of compassion in religion. Their big problem with God is that He doesn't take care of hurting and painful people. That's their argument. They're all about compassion. You're wrong to say that they have this growing animosity and this callousness towards life. See what they're saying? Look at all the things they're giving their money to and they're protesting about publicly. D'Souza argues this, the paradox is resolved when you consider that, when you see that it is precisely because they are so awful in their private lives that they need to pretend to be virtuous in their public lives. People who cheat and steal and are unfaithful and kill their own unborn must compensate to convince others and themselves that they're really not such bad people by taking up causes in order to claim the high moral ground. But eventually what happens in the atheistic society is the moral ground that they claim is moral ground at the lowest moral points. And so the high moral ground is a person's right to choose. The high moral ground is the freedom to love whoever you want, whenever you want, at any time you want, without regard to consequences. Their high moral ground is to resist and speak against any person who would have some kind of conviction or belief in God that would in any way make me feel bad about the way I choose to live. Those people should be compared to, well, the worst men in all of history. Isaiah 5.20 talks about the high moral ground of the atheist when he says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put light for darkness and darkness for light, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who are wise in their own eyes. This is not something that just happens in our day and age. This is not the first time that an age has faced this practical atheism and its characteristic results. No, it's happened over and over again. And it starts in the heart of an individual just like you. We might go and identify all the evils of our world and tisk, tisk, tisk and be opposed to it, but the fact is, is if I'm living in my life like a practical atheist, I'm only greasing the skids. I'm only contributing I'm only contributing by my own choices, my own lifestyle to a mentality ultimately that rejects God and throws the world deeper and deeper into this moral chaos and ruin. History has a way of repeating itself, doesn't it? And here's the last result, and this is why atheism and atheists are fools, the psalmist says, because they do not consider the conclusion or outcome. In verse 5, the psalmist writes this, There they are in great fear, 
for God is with the generation of the righteous. The word there, there in the Hebrew actually can be just as easily translated then. And I think that's the better choice. Let's read it as then they are in great fear for God is with the generation of the righteous. What David is doing at this moment in time, he's contemplating the universal tide and flood of the atheistic spirit And then he's seeing it as tipping the world into this character of corruption and defilement and the lack of anything good until the world is tipped into a point where God brings his judgment upon it. He's seeing the moment at which the earth breaks up and the floodwaters are coming up in the day of Noah, in which the skies open up and the rain is coming down. And he's saying, then they are in great fear. The outcome has come upon them. He's looking at the moment in Sodom and Gomorrah The night after the men were beating down the door in order to get after the men who had visited Lot so that they might take them out in the public square and rape them. He's seeing them in that moment and now the rain of fire is coming down upon the city. And he says, then they're in great judgment. We can cast our eyes to Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. And there we have the picture of this same kind of day. And it says, then, in that moment in time, The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the commanders and the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And then they are in great fear. He says, the Lord stands with His righteous. The image is projecting our minds to Revelation chapter 19, in which we're told that the Lord Jesus will return one day riding upon a white horse with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords emblazoned upon His side, and riding along with Him will be all the armies of heaven dressed in white, and that's us. To watch Him return to bring His judgment upon the earth, and then then they will be in great fear because God will be among His righteous. We will be with Him. Oh, we might be now bread for the consuming atheist, but God stands with us. And then, in that day, when the cumulative effects of their actions bring upon them God's judgment, oh, the foolishness, the foolishness of all of this, To the practical atheist who lives as if there is no God or the intellectual atheist who says with his lips what he has held in his heart for such a long time, their end is just this. God will ultimately not be denied. Deny me all you want. I will not be denied. The Bible says one day every knee that has refused to bow to him will bow and every tongue that has refused to confess him will confess. History has proven it to be true in the past, it will repeat itself until ultimately God will be all in all. Now when you look at David's musings here, you might say that they're rather morbid, they're rather dark. Yes, he sees the universal wave of God deniers, but that's not all that David considers here. If you look at the passage, David also considers and sees a covenant-keeping Lord who is over all. The name he uses four times for God is Yahweh, the promise-keeping God. And what he says in verse 2 is, the Lord sees. He looks down from heaven. God is aware of all these things. He says here, the Lord, in verse 5, that the Lord stands with His people. God is with the people whom He has made righteous. 
Verse 6 tells us that the Lord shelters His people. The Lord, Yahweh, the promise-keeping God is their refuge. Even in the darkest days, when the righteous are being consumed like bread, God has His hands upon them. Romans chapter 8 tells us the same thing. Paul tells us, Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, not death, not any earthly power, not any dark spiritual power, not the present dark situations we face, not the coming destructions that are coming upon the earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He is our refuge. He is our shelter from the stormy blast, even in the midst of the blast. He's watching over us. He's caring for us. And though we might seem to be going down into the waters of the destruction of the age, God knows us. He's captured us to Himself. Brothers and sisters, He's put us in the ark. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He's put us in the ark, and Jesus is the ark. You're going to ride through this flood. You're going to ride through the judgment. Verse 7 says, The Lord also saves. He sees, He stands, He shelters, He saves. He restores those captive in this dreadful age brings to them not simply the removal of the guilt of sin and the power of sin, but brings them one day from the very presence of sin, made righteous by Him, rescued from all the festering wounds of their own selfish sins and all the festering character and defilement of a God-denying world and age. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. First, go to traincpe.org, traincpe.org, to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.